Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Ben Cooper interviews Will Cook. Ben is the head of manager research at Cardano Group, a market-leading investment advisor for pension schemes in the UK and Netherlands that oversees 15 billion pounds of discretionary assets and advises on 50 billion pounds of assets. Will is the portfolio manager at Sun River Management, a fundamental long-short equity investment firm he founded in 2014 after a long tenure at Ziff Brothers Investments. Sun River focuses on underfollowed mid and small cap stocks. Before they get going, Ben and I discussed long short equity investing, selecting Sun River, Cardano's exhaustive research process, and the fit of Sun River in their client portfolios. Ben, great to see you. Likewise, Ted. Please be here. I think it might be interesting to start with just what's your take on long short equity investing? Oof, that's, that's a good place to start. We definitely see a role for long-short equity investing within our portfolios, but I think the managers that qualify for us are few and far between. We have a real focus on alpha, 
And we want to see managers able to produce alpha on both the long and the short side. And I think a lot of managers that we come across are very adept, consistent at generating long alpha. But those that can really generate short alpha are really few and far between. And because of the way that we're set up, we can access managers long only, long short or other strategies. And so it's really alpha that's key. I think when it comes to long short, the other thing that I'd say we're focused on is not all long short is created equally. And so we are looking for managers that maybe operate in an inefficient area or an area that is less well trafficked in and really looking for guys where the environment can be a tailwind rather than a headwind. And so that leads us to managers like Will who operate in between the cracks, mid smaller cap companies maybe regions that are less well trafficked in, like Japan has been an area where we spent a lot of time. So we think it definitely has a role to play in the portfolio, but it's select opportunities which lend themselves to alpha generation. How do you go about assessing this short selling ability? It's a combination really of quantitative and qualitative analysis. I think on the quantitative side, we really like to get our hands dirty there, doing a lot of analysis on hit rates, slugging percentages, really slicing and dicing um, returns and looking at where the manager has had success or not. On the qualitative side, there are a couple of things that we look at. What we find is that not all people are built to short successfully. And so there are certain personality traits Uh, characteristics that we tend to find in successful short sellers. And so that kind of skeptical nature mindset, they tend to be quite quirky individuals. And so it's really trying to tease that out in our underwriting and focusing on that, as well as the process side of things. And I think that what we're looking for there is a, a recognition from managers that Shorting is not just a mirror image of the long side. There are other things that need to be considered. And I think one important area is the kind of sentiment market feel, which I think you need more on the short side than perhaps you maybe do on the long side. And so we're looking really for a combination of stock IQ, as we refer to it, and stock EQ. So when you were first looking at Will, there were also a number of other spinoffs from Ziff Brothers at the same time. How did you figure out the differentiation that led you to investing with Will relative to some of those others? Yeah, so I kind of want to be careful with what, with what I say on this one, but I think that probably one of the differences between Will and maybe some of his peers was that we felt he'd been very thoughtful around how he had set the business up. And not only who he partnered with initially, because we were early stage, we weren't day one with the Sun River guys, we came a little bit later, but we felt that Will had really thought about things and perhaps gone a different route to some of what his peers had. And I felt like he'd also been a little bit more market friendly with some of his terms. And a lot of his peers had launched with kind of three-year rolling liquidity, which We can do that type of structure, but the bar is very high. And so Will had gone down a different route, had a different backing, and we thought that he was in a stable position to really grow the business. So you and your team at Cardano do have this reputation for very deep and very creative due diligence. And I'm curious if there are any examples of something that you did in particular with Will that come to mind in that process. Yeah, so I think there were a couple of things that we did with him that reflect that. The first bit is around reference checking. I mean, a lot of people do references. For us, it's really a thorough reference checking process. And so he had a lot of former colleagues that he'd worked with, and we spoke to many of them. We spoke to companies that he had previously invested with on the management team side. We spoke to research providers that he used, and we also tried to build a personal picture of him. So we went out for dinner with him and his wife, just to get a sense for the the human. I mean, ultimately, we're backing people as well as a process. And so we wanted to see him in his kind of natural habitat with his wife. The other element, which we'll allude to as quite a bruising encounter, is that with long short equity managers in particular, we tend not to go toe-to-toe with them when it comes to individual stock knowledge. I mean, they're doing this day in, day out. We're not. So there's always going to be a big advantage towards them. But what we feel that we can opine on and assess is is the process. And so we picked a couple of examples at random from Will and we said, we're coming in the office, we're coming on site. We'd like to see 
the write-up, but not only the investment write-up, all the ongoing research, the email traffic, everything printed off in the meeting room. And we're going to sit there and we're going to go through it all. And then if you could come in afterwards and let us opine on it and tell you maybe where there's different from what you're saying um, in the pitch book, then that's what we're going to do. So I would say quite testing, you know, not all managers are going to be up for that, but Will was. All right. One more for you, Ben, which is how does Sun River fit into your portfolios? We own them primarily for their alpha generation. And particularly what we found attractive was this focus on the mid and small cap tweener companies. And so they're part of a broader portfolio of long short equity, long only, and some other hedge fund strategies as well. And we have them in that small and mid cap niche. And as I said, particularly what they're able to bring on the short side, I think differentiates them versus a lot of other managers that we own. So they play a valuable role within the equity component of our portfolios and and particularly for clients that are looking for a high alpha orientated strategy. Great. Well, Ben, thanks for bringing Will in and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Ted. Will, take us back to the beginning. How did you originally get into investing? Sure, Ben. Thanks. And it's great to talk to you as always. So I didn't grow up wanting to be an investor. I actually studied something called political and social thought and minored in philosophy at college and then uh, worked at a law firm for a summer and realized that studying the philosophy of law is quite different than the day-to-day grind of practicing law. And I became exposed to some of the undergrad business school classes being taught at UVA where I went, and I was able to take a class, a security analysis class, and spent a whole semester reviewing and analyzing Raytheon, a government IT services company at the time was making Patriot missiles, which I thought was really cool. It's around the time of the first Gulf War. And it really opened my eyes that, wow, there's a career out there where I can just learn about really cool, exciting companies for my job. And that made me interested in that. And then the next summer, I was able to work at a a regional brokerage firm, which no longer exists, called Wheat First. And my favorite thing about that job was literally the guy had the old black squawk box on his desk every morning, the broker I was working for. And the highlight of my day was the sell side analyst getting on in the morning and telling the brokers what stocks they were going to pitch to their clients that day. And that made me further interested in investing. And then after college, I was lucky enough to get a a job at Morgan Stanley and didn't really want to be an investment banker, but it was good training. But one really interesting thing happened to me at Morgan Stanley, which is the group that was sitting right next to me in the next bullpen over took Netscape public about a month after I got there. So it's pretty exciting time. This was 1995. And it made me really want to get involved in investing in interesting and exciting companies and was able to get a job at General Atlantic Partners, which was a lot smaller firm at the time, but a really wonderful firm that really exposed me to the buy side and investing. And then my career went on from there. And when you reflect back on that period, What moment, mistake, or mentor really shaped that early investing part of your career? After General Atlantic, I was going to go back to business school at the time and deferred admission to business school to take a job at a firm called Internet Capital Group. And this ended up being a really impactful period in my life. This was 1999. I got there about a month before ICG went public. So we went public ourselves. We were an investing firm. We were really a rocket ship for about six months. The company peaked at a market cap of about 55 billion when we had a little over 100 employees at the time. Uh, This was really the peak of the internet bubble. And then subsequently, the stock fell something like 90 or 95% in the next six months. So it was an incredibly volatile period. But that chapter in my career really changed my perspective on investing. I'd done private equity up until then. It made me really interested in the concept of short selling and the concept of being able to profit when one finds a business model that seems unsustainable. And that really appealed to me. This was also at the time of a bunch of accounting frauds and accounting scandals started to come out. So Enron, WorldCom, some smaller ones like Global Crossing and others. And the combination of that ICG experience and being exposed to these accounting frauds. When I went back to business school, it made me really interested in learning about short selling, made me really interested in taking a bunch of forensic accounting classes, which I did at Columbia Business School, which is where I went. Uh, at Columbia, I was fortunate enough to take a class that was taught by 
John Griffin, who was still running Blue Ridge Capital at the time. And John's a really passionate short seller and passionate investor. And that really made me excited about the idea of getting into the public markets. And that's really why I made the shift from private equity into the public markets, such that I could have the opportunity to profit on both sides of the book, not just the long side. How did the opportunity come about for you to make that step into the public market side of things? Like many things in life, a mix of luck and happenstance. But Ian McKinnon, who was the person that ran Ziff Brothers Investments, which is where I went to work for 10 years after business school, was actually a guest speaker in Griffin's class. And uh, I found him to be incredibly impressive. He ended up being not only my boss for 10 years, but a good friend and a mentor. And I hounded him after class for a job and ended up being able to work at Ziff. And it was a really wonderful time to enter the public markets. This was the early 2000s and a great time to enter Ziff, which was a fantastic firm as well. I was the last person hired that reported directly to Ian. And it was a great experience for me because I ended up being essentially a utility infielder for my first three years at Ziff. So I covered everything that nobody else wanted to cover, which was great training for the job that I eventually got being a portfolio manager. And so I did that for uh, about three years and then took over what was then the software group. We renamed it the Software and Business Services Group. And that's really the thrust of what we do at Sun River today. And so I spent 10 years at Ziff, a fantastic firm, learned a lot there, and then launched Sun River after Ziff closed at the end of 2013. And what made Ziff such an interesting, unique place to work at that time? I thought and still think to this day that Ziff really struck the chords correctly, finding the right balance of really motivated, really hungry, really smart people, but also curious people and people that were interested in in making themselves better and also people that you liked to spend time with. It's a really hard combination to find on Wall Street. You know, you can find people on kind of both ends of the spectrum, but Ziff really found that right balance. And it, there's a reason why many of us worked there for a very, very long time in an industry with a lot of turnover because I think they hired the right type of people. And I've taken that to Sun River today where we've had incredible longevity here at Sun River. We're about seven and a half years old and we've had employees that have been working here since day one and soon afterwards. And that is unusual in our business. And I think it's that combination of things that I mentioned. And we really focus on what we did at Zip, which is let's make ourselves better such that we can maximize returns three years from now and five years from now, not next week, next month, and next quarter. And so we do things to invest in ourselves. We do offsites, which we did a lot of at Ziff. Sometimes they're internal, sometimes they have external speakers. And we really try and take a longer term view in what we are doing, both with investing in ourselves and also the investments that we make. And in an increasingly short term world where everything seems to be about what did you do for me today, taking that longer term view on both the development of your people and that also your investments, I think is an increasingly rare trait. And for the right type of investor and the right type of person, it's a really wonderful thing that's not easy to find. It creates employee loyalty and longevity. How did you go about establishing the culture at Sun River? What was your initial vision for that? And how has that played out in practice? I mean, I thought long and hard about this. I personally feel that thinking about investing in your employees and employee management and culture is sometimes not as emphasized in the investment business as maybe it should be. And some of that came from Ziff, we really emphasized that quite a lot. So I I thought about a couple of things. One, I wanted to create a culture of humility. I find the investment business to be incredibly humbling. I'm sometimes humored by the egos that are in our business because I find the business to be very humbling. But I wanted to create an investment culture that is respectful of the markets and also humbling. The reason that's important is because if you maintain humility, you can really learn from your mistakes and you can get better every day. And that's really what we try to do. All we can control every day is making a better decision than we did yesterday. We can't control results today or tomorrow. We can only control making better decisions. If you create that type of culture, um, I think you put yourself in a position to do that. I'd say the other thing that I think about when I thought about creating the culture of Sun River is that I wanted to hire people that had had some kind of bump in the road or setback along the way. And perhaps that sounds odd, but I think one of the most important traits you can have in investing is resilience and grit. You're wrong about 40% of the time in our business if you're doing a good job. And when you're wrong, even on some very high conviction positions, 
you need to be able to get yourself up off the mat, dust yourself off, and come back the next day sharp and ready to go. And if you've never had a real setback before in your professional career, that can be a difficult thing to do. And so if you look at the people that I've hired, they're all really smart, really motivated, hardworking people. But each of us, to some extent, I would say for me, was probably my experience in the internet bubble, have had a professional bump in the road. And I think it really it really solidified everyone's ability to learn from those mistakes and get up and be better and smarter the next day. So I think that's a really important part of how we've tried to build the culture here. And then lastly, I would just say, back to the notion of Ziff kind of investing in ourselves, we really do a lot of that. We do offsites. We spend a lot of time talking about ways to make ourselves better five years from now. And that does not make us better tomorrow. And it does not help our returns this quarter. And if we were really short-term focused, we probably wouldn't make those investments. But we are making those investments in ourselves because we think that's the way we're going to maximize returns for our investors over the long run, which is our goal and our job. I've heard you talking about this concept of learning from your mistakes and wanting to improve and evolve on the back of those. How do you and the team go about that in practice? We do case studies on prior mistakes. Usually you need a little bit of time to pass, (laughs) depending on the size of the mistake, to analyze things objectively without emotion. Emotion is the the enemy in the investment business. But we do case studies on prior mistakes. At the end of every year, I go through all the big losers in the portfolio and I, I try to separate process and outcome as best as I can and really try and talk to each of the analysts about what I think are process mistakes as distinct from outcome mistakes and really try and learn from those. And that's really the only way that I know of, at least, to really try and get better. I have a saying around here, avoid the losers and the winners take care of themselves. And so I think that's a critical part of how we approach things here at Sun River. And if you're not trying to be introspective and look yourself in the mirror about your mistakes, it's going to be really hard to not repeat them in the future. So I think it's a critical part of what we do. So maybe then switching gears, let's talk about Sun River's niche. How do you think you can generate alpha and differentiate yourselves in what is a very competitive space? So we've evolved over seven plus years in business. And my perspective has changed as the market has changed and as the hedge fund business has changed. I mean, if you go back to the early 2000s when I entered the business, there were assets under management and hedge funds were much smaller. Crowded trades weren't really a thing yet. The availability of information was very different. There were no expert networks. You could count cars in a parking lot and that was you know, an edge at a retailer. And so the business has really changed quite a lot in the last 20 years. And what we've tried to do at Sun River is position our firm for what we think is a enduring opportunity set to generate alpha and outperformance. And there are many ways to evolve your strategy in this business, but how we've done it is really kind of a three-pronged approach. So one is we have intentionally moved down market cap into less well-followed stocks. So our median market cap many years ago was roughly 20 billion. Today, it tends to hover more around 5 billion. A lot of our stocks are covered by just a few analysts on the sell side. So it's William Blair and Avondale or something and not Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan. And we think one really distinct advantage of that strategy is that you're going to put yourself in a position to find more inefficiently priced securities. If there's fewer people looking at your stocks, I think the equity business works just like any other asset class. The more money chasing the same idea is going to make that idea more efficiently priced and less opportunity to outperform and to generate alpha. So we want to go where there's less competition. That's generally what we're trying to do. So that's plank number one. The second thing we do, which I think is really important, is we tend to be very active during periods of dislocation. So that can be an idiosyncratic period of dislocation for a particular security. So they miss earnings, there's a competitive announcement, and a stock sells off. That's kind of the most frequent type of of dislocation that we try to take advantage of. But there are times when there are more market-wide dislocations, and we are very active during those periods. That sounds like it's easy to do, and a lot of people say they do that, but if you actually look at the data we get from our prime brokers, what at least we see is that the industry as a whole, the hedge fund industry as a whole, actually does not deploy more capital during periods of dislocation. The hedge fund industry retrenches and deploys less capital during periods of dislocation. We think that is 
long-term destructive to returns. So we want to put more capital to work when we think there's a greater chance for dislocation. So what we talk about here is playing offense when other people are playing defense. And it's really how you frame your job. And we frame our job as maximizing the long-term returns for our investors, not minimizing the volatility this month or this week. And if you frame your job like that, that you want to actually be very active during periods of dislocation, and we are. So that's kind of the second big plank. The third big plank is really being what we call long-term thinkers in the short-term world. So most of us on our investment staff are ex-private equity people. We tend to think with a multi-year lens in all of our investments, both longs and shorts. So we get attracted to situations where we think there's a temporary dislocation that over a period of three years will uh, resolve itself And over that period, we'll get the benefit, let's say it's a long, of compounding earnings in kind of the mid-teens, and then we'll get 20 to 40% multiple expansion as whatever short-term thing people are worried about resolves itself. That's a really powerful combination for alpha creation. So those three planks, being small, mid-cappy, playing offense, other people are playing defense, and then being long-term thinkers in a short-term world, I think positions us really well to have differentiated outperformance and to generate a lot of alpha for our investors. And on the dislocation point, we've seen you take advantage of these periods that you're talking about, the market-wide sell-off many times. How do you make sure that you and the team are primed to capture those types of market events? Some of it is just training. You know, how I was trained in the business, particularly for my 10 years at Ziff, is that one of our great competitive advantages at ZBI was our permanent capital base. Emphasized uh, quite significantly that we need to take advantage of that. And that's one of the ways that we're going to be able to create our outperformance. And so that's really how I was trained in the business. And then I can now go look over history, both at Ziff and then in our seven and a half years at Sun River. And what we can see is that the evidence is, it's not just us saying this creates value. We can actually see, we create a lot of value by being active during those periods of dislocation, not only capturing the market rebound or the rebound in a particular stock, but we generate a lot of alpha as well. So we're generating alpha and we're capturing some beta. And so So having that history really gives people confidence that the strategy that we've laid out that sounds really good actually produces results. And the more results you see and the more continuity of those results, and it really gives the internal investment staff confidence that, hey, this is what we do and it really, really works. The other thing I would say is just you have to hire the right people and have people that think about investing in the same way that you do. We are not great at very short-term things around here. Other people do that a lot better than we do. So when we have these periods of dislocation, we don't kid ourselves that we are going to call the bottom, that we know you know where, where things are going in the next week or month or even quarter. What we say is, wow, on a three-year basis, this looks incredible. And if we are not deploying capital when something looks incredible on a three-year basis, we're not doing our job. And then we have some various tools in place to help us. We use a, a piece of software to help us that I look at every day. And what we can see is how the IRR of the, of the portfolio, both as a whole, but then also individual stocks changes during periods of dislocation. And if you've got a long that used to have a you know 17% IRR and now it has a 28% IRR and you're not deploying capital into that, you're not doing your job. It's that kind of combination of things that really helps us deploy capital into periods of dislocation, both within individual securities and also portfolio-wide. And when I think about differentiation when it comes to Sun River, one of the things that always is towards the top of my list is the short side. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to shorting and what you think it takes to be a successful short seller? I'd say it's a mix. So you have to hire the right people. I guess I've mentioned that a couple of times now, but it's so critical to know the personalities of the people you're hiring, the motivations of the people you're hiring, what their natural proclivities are, what is their personality set them up to do successfully. Um, and so we have on purpose, hired an investment staff that has a mix of personalities. And I think to be a really successful short seller, you need to have a certain level of skepticism. One thing that I remember back when I took John Griffin's class, and he said that the kind of right posture, I think, is what he used of a long short investor is to be a skeptical optimist. So I thought it was just 
really great way to describe the right kind of personality and mindset of a, of a good long short investor. And that's really what I look for in people. You have to have some level of skepticism, but you also can't always think the glass is half empty. It's really a mix, but you have to have the right personalities. Then I think you have to have a couple of other things. You have to have a pretty facile knowledge of accounting. I know that sounds really boring, but accounting is the language of business. And you know, back when I went back to business school, as I said, it was you know, after the days of Enron and WorldCom. And one of my favorite classes was actually called earnings quality. And it was digging through the footnotes to see you know, what clues could you have seen in advance that there were going to be problems at some of these companies. And so I think you have to have a facile knowledge of accounting. We are pretty good at that here. We also have an external forensic accounting firm that we work very closely with that helps us in really complicated accounting issues. But I think that's really important. Lastly, I would say you have to really have a comfort and a knowledge of how the short selling business works in terms of alpha generation. So what I have found over the years is that long alpha generation tends to be a little more smooth and steady, not always, but a little more smooth and steady. And short alpha generation tends to be a little more episodic. So there are periods when it just rains short alpha and short profits. And then there are extended periods when it's a very difficult short selling environment. And I think to be a successful short seller, one has to have comfort and knowledge of that history such that during the periods when it's dry and you're not generating much short alpha, you have confidence that past will be prologue and we'll have another period of copious amounts of short alpha and short profit generation. So I think that's an important part of it as well. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com allocators. That's netsuite.com allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So this difference in profile then between longs and shorts that you're talking about there, does that manifest itself in how you construct both the long and short portfolios? How would you compare and contrast how you tackle both of those sides of the portfolio? Yeah, there's a couple of different angles I can take that. One is just purely from a concentration perspective that we are much more comfortable being concentrated on the long side than the short side. We have about 20 longs. Typically, top 10 longs are 60 to 70% of capital. Short side is less than half as concentrated as that. We have about 35 shorts. There's a risk management element to the short side, just given the nature of that business that requires a different portfolio construction than the long side does. Another angle that we think about with the short side is, do we have enough diversification of idea types? We call them frameworks, but it's dangerous to have all one type of long or all one type of short because they can be correlated in ways that you didn't foresee and all at the same time. And that can be very detrimental to performance. So we have different what we call frameworks on the long and the short side. But on the short side, we're always trying to make sure we have a mix of what we call structural shorts, which are businesses that are have some kind of structural demand decline typically. And something that you know we say is if you flew in the best CEO in the world tomorrow, if he or she couldn't fix the business problem, that's our kind of definition of a structural short. And then we wait for the right time to get involved. So we have a bunch of those. We also like to have a fair share of accounting shorts in the book. And those tend to be very idiosyncratic and they work at very unpredictable times. And then we also like to have a fair share of what we call booms that go bust, which are essentially companies that create more or less the illusion of either higher demand or sustainable demand by aggressively utilizing credit or extending credit. And those can be spectacular blowups. But so on the short side, we try to have a mix of those types of frameworks. And I think that really helps with some of the risk management on the short side because they tend to work at different times. And is the environment for single name shorting more challenging and treacherous today than what it has been when you compare it to your 20 plus years doing it? 
There's been different periods when it's been better to be a short seller for sure. I'd say more recently, when you have a really rip-roaring economy, the cyclical tends to outweigh the secular or the structural. For a period of time, I mean, these tend to be fleeting periods of time, historically speaking, but the market will essentially lose sight of or not care about longer-term structural issues with the company because the cyclical tailwinds are so strong with a particular company. That is a difficult short-selling environment because what we tend to be good at is identifying businesses that have really longer-term structural issues that aren't able to be fixed. Historically speaking, that tends to mean that low-quality outperforms, which is what you've seen over the last, call it, 12 months, and that tends to be a difficult short-selling environment. The good news is those periods tend to be kind of fleeting. So I would say more recently that has been the case, but I think history gives us confidence that that won't last forever. Very accommodative capital markets are another challenge for short selling where businesses with problems can access capital markets cheaply. That makes the level of business failures lower. It makes it easier for companies that have really problematic balance sheets to get through it and muddle through for longer than they would otherwise. I'd say those are kind of the headwinds. I'd say that the tailwinds to short selling right now are that there's been in a quite a lot of speculation and quite a lot of, I think, willingness of investors to embrace fanciful business plans with hockey stick projections that are currently unproven and in businesses that may have never made a dime in their lives. And that that should be, I think, filling the pipeline of some pretty interesting short ideas right now. So I think there's headwinds and tailwinds for the short selling business right now. In some ways, it's better. In some ways, it's worse than it's been at other periods. And the investment process that you've just described, that's been in place now for over seven years. Since you founded the firm, how has that piece evolved? There's a couple of things that have changed. I mean, one is the ponds we're fishing in are different. We're in much more off the run, much less well-known stocks than we used to be. And part of that is just that because our capital base is smaller than the firm I used to work at, that we can just do things that other people can't do. We want to go where the bar is lowest for us to outperform. And so I'd say that's the biggest strategic evolution of our firm over the last seven years. More tactically, some of the process changes, I would say there's two that I think are relevant to perhaps discuss. One is that we instituted something called a sentiment tracker. Uh, This is probably five, six years ago now. And this was really an, an effort by us to have a better understanding of whether or not the sentiment in a stock is a friend or a foe for our positions. And this is more relevant for us because we are smaller and we can be nimble. And so if we feel that sentiment is not on our side at a particular point in time, or is not as much on our side as it used to be, we can adjust sizing. And because we're smaller, we don't move the stocks. If you're at a very, very big firm, sometimes that can be problematic. So the sentiment tracker has been really helpful to us. And it's really a mix of looking at where's the relative multiple of the stock versus itself and versus history looking at things like change in short interest, things like change in sell-side rating. You kind of want to do the opposite of what the sell-side tells you to do in our business. And it can actually be a very powerful predictive tool for future alpha generation. So we can look at where the sentiment is in any one of our positions at any given point in time. And we can say, hey, if you look back historically, this has been a really good time to be long or short the stock. This has been a very high probability hit rate for future alpha generation or the opposite. And it really helps inform the sizing of a position. The other thing it helps us do is it really aids our ability to be contrarian. And I've found over the years, some of the best investments I've ever made, they tend to have a little bit of a contrarian bent. You feel like you're kind of out there by yourself a little bit. And sometimes that's hard to do. But if you have the benefit of data, in this case, the sentiment tracker showing us, hey, historically, it may feel weird. It may feel contrarian. This is when you want to own this stock, or this is when you want to be short this stock. It really, really helps. So I think that was an important process evolution for us. One other process evolution is we, I think we've gotten better at quantifying how we expect to generate alpha. I mean, our business is an alpha business. It's an alpha spread business. If you can kind of generate mid-teens alpha spread with the right portfolio construction, um, you know, that's, I think, a good outcome. And so that's really what we're trying to do. And so to quantify how you're going to generate that alpha is actually really important and not that many people do it. Let's say it's a long, there's really three ways to generate alpha. One is you can compound earnings faster than the market. Two is you can have earnings beats. Or three, you can have relative multiple expansion. And so in every single one of our investments, long and short, we are quantifying at the outset how we expect to generate alpha in a particular investment. And then what that enables me to do as a portfolio manager is look across the portfolio and make sure we're not betting too much on 
one element or the other. Like we're not betting on a ton of multiple expansion or don't have enough companies that we think are going to beat earnings or we don't have enough, enough compounders. It allows me to make sure we have balance in the book. And so I think those two evolutions, the sentiment tracker and the path to alpha have been important process evolutions for us. So, well, you mentioned there the focus on small and mid-cap companies. Why target that particular part of the universe? Yeah, I'd say two reasons, Ben. One is if you look over a very long period of time, mid-caps have actually been the best performing part of the market over, say, 30 years. It's actually hard to remember that because large-cap growth has been the place to be for the better part of a decade. But to us, it makes a lot of sense because how we think about the mid-caps that we invest in, So small caps, there's some great small caps, but there's also a lot of risk there. There's a lot of single product companies. There's a higher failure rate. And so you can have a wider range of outcomes. And then if you go to the very large companies, you start to hit a headroom problem, maybe not with some of the best technology companies in the world now, but with generally speaking, large caps, you have more of a TAM or a saturation issue. When you go to the mid cap part of the market, companies are a little more proven and they enter what we call the replication phase of their business. So they've figured out their mousetrap and they have a competitive advantage, probably the market's evolved and hopefully it's like a duopoly or oligopoly structure, which we like. And then they kind of can replicate. And then you can get along that goes from 2 billion to 4 billion to 8 billion and not 200 to 400 to 800, which is a lot harder to find. So generally speaking, over a long period of time, I think mid caps are actually a very good place to be for both our long only product and also our, our hedge fund, which is net long the market as well. I also like mid caps on the short side too, because there are still greater opportunity to find businesses that can really fail and have really bad balance sheets as opposed to very large caps as well. So I think mid caps are actually a great part of the market to be in over a longer period of time. And the other thing I like about mid caps too is that we do a lot of what we call tweener investments. So it was actually my nickname at Ziff was the tweener guy. I've always loved these companies that fall kind of in between industry classifications. And the reason is because they're more likely to be inefficiently priced. So we do a lot in a sector like government IT services, a sector I've been covering for 20 years. You know, it's an industry that's like kind of covered by technology guys, but then also kind of covered by people that follow the big prime contractors. And each one of those pools of analysts have a blind spot. And so you can find companies that when they're in between this industry classification, they can be really poorly understood. And if you combine the tweener aspect of a company with also being more small mid cap and kind of off the run, you really have an opportunity to generate a very large difference in what you think the earnings power of a company can be. So if we combine those elements, we can find companies where we think consensus is wrong by 30 or 40%, not three or 4%. So your margin of safety on those companies ends up being really big because you think consensus is wrong by so much that you can be even a little bit wrong yourself and you still make money and you still make alpha. So I think that's why being in the mid cap area is a great place to be over a long period of time and really puts us in a position to generate the kind of alpha and outperformance that we think investors should demand of us. And having run money at Sun River for this amount of time, there's a lot of data that you're able to look at in terms of historical positions that you've been involved in. Do you look at that data? Do you go back and look at it? And if you do, has that revealed anything that has led to maybe refinements around the margin? Yes, is the answer. As I mentioned earlier, we do offsites and we did uh, an offsite somewhat recently. And because we have so much data now, there's more signal than noise. And we were able to go back and look at all of our past investments. So we tag every investment when it goes into the portfolio by what framework it's in. So then we can look over time and we can say what frameworks have been working, which ones haven't. Is that a point in time or are we doing something wrong? That was, I think, a rich vein of discussion. The other really interesting thing that we did was we went back and looked at, and we, we use a piece of software that helps us do this. We looked at where we're adding value and where we're not adding value in the investment process, meaning are we adding value in security selection or are we adding value in sizing or are we adding value in trading? That was a really interesting and and in some ways humbling for me as the portfolio manager exercise, but it really showed that we're adding a lot of value in security selection and, and a large amount of value in sizing and really not much value in trading at all. Good news was we weren't destroying value in trading, but we weren't adding a lot of value in trading. And so it made me think a lot about some of the smaller position tweaks that we do that take mind share, only so many decisions a human being can make in a day. Are these really small position tweaks 
really making that much of a difference? Or should we be spending more and more time thinking about big position sizing changes and security selection? Because that's really where we're adding the most amount of value. The other thing that came out of looking at our data on this, uh, the framework point I mentioned earlier was that we were exiting some of our shorts, particular structural shorts too early. So we were taking a gain and then the short kept adding alpha even after we had exited. And so the data said, gosh, if we had just, I think we we hold our shorts longer than the average hedge fund does. But if we held them even longer, that we would have added even more value on the short side. It was actually not the case on the long side. We were exiting pretty well on the long side, but on the short side, we were exiting too early. And so that really, I think every time we now talk about exiting, particularly a structural short, we ask ourselves, are we doing this too early? Is there still more juice to squeeze out of this lemon? Because really good short ideas are hard to come by and the market's pretty smart. The longer you give the market, the more likely it is to be efficient. That I think was an important process change for us on the short side as well. And you talked about sizing there a couple of times, but at the overall portfolio level, how do you arrive at the right level of risk taking for the portfolio? So I think about really three big like high-level risk levers that we can pull. And we need to optimize those for what our process is good at and what we are good at. So you can take concentration risk, of which we definitely take some, and I think we should take some because I think there's only so many good investment ideas out there. We take some market risk. We're roughly on average low 40s, 40% net. So we're taking some market risk. And then you can take financial risk. You can run leverage. So one needs to, I think, optimize those three risk levers depending on what their strategy is. And so the view we have taken is there's only so many good ideas out there. And so we are going to run some concentration risk. We have also taken the view we're going to run some market risk. And we'll run a little bit of financial leverage, but not much. Because if you run too much financial leverage, then really you get you put yourself in a position where it's very difficult to act during periods of dislocation. And that's a very important part of our strategy. That's really how we think about managing risk at the highest level. The other things we think about, and this has been an evolution in our process, what are the underlying, for lack of a better term, factor risks that are building up in the portfolio based on our idiosyncratic stock picking? If you are not paying attention to those and are not aware of those, you can end up having a bet that you don't intend to take because of the nature of your idiosyncratic bets are adding up into one directional bet on something. And so we have a risk meeting once a month. We talk about what are our exposure to the various factors that we pay attention to. And we just make sure that we're not out over our skis on anything. And the good news about having seven and a half years of history is we can now look at where have we been historically? Where are we today? Does anything look out of whack with our historical risk levels on those various factors? And how do you think about the scalability of the strategy given the areas that you're focusing on? The good news about our strategy is that from my perspective, a really great opportunity to generate alpha and outperformance. The less good news is that it can only scale to a certain level. We own and we're short more on the short side than the long side, but some stocks that just aren't that liquid. So what we have said is that we probably start to have some liquidity issues on, particularly on a couple of our shorts at around one and a half billion in AUM to stay in our sandbox and generate the kind of returns that we think we can and should generate for our LPs. We need to be cognizant of the growth of the business in a way that maintains the opportunity set for us. Periods of hedge fund de-risking or deleveraging seem to be becoming more and more common. Do you see that having an impact on your portfolio? And do you make any attempts to try and immunize your portfolio against these type of events? It tends not to impact us as much as others, at least from my perspective. Because of the nature of the ponds we're fishing in, You know, at any given point in time, when I look at, say, for example, the Goldman Sachs VIP list, we'll have maybe one stock in there. So that's like top 50 hedge fund names. Given the nature of the opportunity set that we're trying to take advantage of, we don't tend to be as impacted, I think, as, as many others. We tend to think about it and look at it as a period of opportunity for us. And we can certainly tell often when that's happening because you can just look at the screen and you know all the popular hedge fund stocks are getting crushed. And often a lot of the popular hedge fund shorts are going up at the same time. (laughs) And you kind of can tell what's going on. We tend to think that's a source of opportunity for us. We're humble in that we don't know how long it will go on or when it will cease. We tread somewhat cautiously and don't try to be a hero in any particular day. I've found that those tend to be periods for us to set up the portfolio for future outperformance and alpha, as opposed to being something that we need to be worried about. 
and more generally, what do you think about the opportunity set for your strategy today? What's good about it? What is not so good about it? There's always something interesting going on in the markets, but over the last COVID period and now recovery, I think it's been an interesting market in that there's been two types of stocks more generally that people have seemed to gravitate towards, neither of which we tend to gravitate towards. So on the one end of the barbell, if you will, has been lots of very cyclical stocks. People really wanted to capture the cyclical beta uptrade. We don't really do cyclicals. And then on the other end has been everything super, super growthy. The markets seem to want both of those. We don't really do either one of those. Like I, I don't know how to buy a stock at 50 times revenue. Uh, I just don't know how to do it. Uh, I don't know how to think about that risk reward. Nor on the other end, do I want to buy stocks that are really terrible businesses, but are having a cyclical upturn. What's happened is there's been a whole bunch of companies in the middle that have not necessarily been in the favor of investors. Quality has been, by our measures, one of the worst performing factors in the last 12 to 18 months. And we tend to have a quality bias in our style. So I think what it's done is created an opportunity for us to really, on the long side, buy some really high quality businesses that we think are going to compound earnings at good rates at big discounts to the market. So if we can own a super high quality business that we think is going to compound earnings 15% plus, and we think it's a 20 to 30, maybe 40% discount to the market and markets at 20 times, we have plenty of stocks that are 12 to 14 times earnings right now. That's a really good setup for future outperformance on the long side. So that makes us very excited about the long book. I mentioned the sentiment tracker earlier, and the sentiment tracker is among the highest it's ever been right now for our long book. On the short side, I also think it's a good opportunity, particularly to identify two types of businesses. One is taking the other side of, of the barbell I mentioned, but businesses that have had maybe a little bit of a cyclical bump, but are really poorly positioned for the long term. There's a lot of those companies that have had a ton of multiple expansion and are now trading at real multiples, you know, mid-teens, high-teens multiples for businesses that used to trade at eight to 12 times earnings. There's just been a lot of multiple expansion in some pretty bad companies. And so that makes us pretty excited on the short side. We think we're good at identifying longer term structural shorts. There's a lot of those that have had a real bit in the market because of this cyclical upswing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's companies that I think have a very questionable profitability, very questionable customer value propositions, which is something that we talk a lot about. Companies that maybe have never generated a dime of free cash flow in their lives, but are trading at big revenue multiples. You know, That's kind of the other end of the spectrum where I think on the short side, we're seeing good opportunities as well. So the short book right now actually has the highest sentiment tracker it's ever had. So it's an unusual setup for us. Usually you have one side of the book with really good sentiment tracker and the other side, not so good. You know, Today, we actually have high sentiment tracker on both sides of the book, which is an unusual setup for us and I think is encouraging. Time will tell. You know, There's no guarantees in this business, but it's encouraging from my perspective. And given that setup then with it looking attractive on both sides of the portfolio, going back to our comments on portfolio construction, is that manifesting itself in how you construct the portfolio? And if so, in what ways? We stay disciplined with the number of names in the book. So I mentioned earlier, 20 longs and 35 shorts. I think that's a really good discipline to have because it creates competition for capital and it forces lower conviction ideas out of the book. So that's happening. That is the case. There is competition for capital. What I would say is that our gross exposure tends to tick up when we think we have better bets on uh, and more asymmetric bets on. I mean, this business is all about the asymmetry of the bets you're putting on. Like, you know, it's, people complicate the investment business, but it's really pretty simple. It's, you know, if you're right, how much you're going to make. If you're wrong, how much you're going to lose. And then what's the probability of being right or wrong? When you got a lot of investments, you think you're going to make a lot if you're right, and you're not going to lose that much if you're wrong, and you have pretty high confidence, you should put more capital to work. And so that's what you have seen and what our portfolio has exhibited, as I think our IG generation has been good and the opportunity set's good, as you've seen our gross exposure tick up. Our nets don't tend to move that much. We tend to keep our nets in a more consistent range, but we do let our gross tick up when we feel like the opportunity set's really good for us. And taking a step back then, Will, as you reflect back on what you've achieved to date at Sun River, what do you wish that you knew when you started the firm? I wish I had known how important and challenging it can be to build a business with the right types of investors. In retrospect, really took for granted what an incredible platform it was to work for the Ziff family for 10 years. Not only are they really good and really smart people that were wonderful to work for, but the stability of that capital base, I think really gave us a significant competitive advantage. If you're worried about somebody firing you after you have a bad month or quarter, it can really get in the way of making good investment decisions. And so I wish I had known how 
difficult it would be to make ourselves known out there, make ourselves known to the right people, to the right LPs. I think I naively thought that it's a returns business. And if I just put up returns, capital will flow. And so we really underinvested in the marketing part of our business for years. We actually didn't even have a partner relations person for many years. And so I wish I had thought about that and understood the, the challenges of that earlier on, because it can also be really distracting for me as a portfolio manager to have to take time to try to do that too, when I'd rather be focused on the portfolio. I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is underestimating that part of the business. And how have you gone about forming your partnerships with the LPs that you've brought on board? Today, we are seven and a half years old. We're 100% employee-owned today, which is, I think, really great for our employees. We have really close relationships with really good LPs. And when I think about those LPs, right, we're, we're never going to be a huge hedge fund just because of our strategy. So we don't need to be all things to all people. We know we're not right for everybody. But what I've tried to do is, one, be really transparent and really upfront about what we do. And the reason I do that is that when I think about myself and how I act with a stock, I act well when I understand everything about that stock. And then when something goes wrong, because it inevitably does almost with every stock at some point, I act well when I really understand it. And so I want our LPs to really understand everything they can about us. We're super transparent with our LPs. And I think what that does is it puts our LPs in a position to when we hit the inevitable bump in the road, and you know we're not going to generate alpha every month or every quarter, that they understand what's going on with us. And so I think that's a really important part of how we've approached partnership with our LPs. And, and I think is, at least from my perspective, somewhat different. You know, The other thing we've done is just aligning our interests with LPs in terms of fees. So we have a sliding scale management fee, which disincentivizes us to be asset gatherers and keeps us focused on performance. We also have a, a incentive fee that gets better with time. So the longer you're an investor with us, the better your incentive fee gets. So I think these all align incentives in the right way. And when you look ahead, how do you define success for Sun River going forward? So on a day-to-day basis, all I can do is control the quality of the decision-making that we're doing, right? I can't control short-term returns, of course. And so I define it, I guess, short-term and long-term. Short-term, are we continuing to get better? Are we doing what we say we're going to do, which is be humble, learn from our mistakes, make better decisions tomorrow than we did yesterday, all those types of things, not be emotional, be very even keeled, which is something I learned from my old boss as if he was a very even keeled guy in the face of adversity. Uh, I think it's a really critical thing for a portfolio manager to have. So all those day-to-day decision-making things is how I define success on a, on a day-to-day basis. But longer term, we're in a results business. And the equity long short business is an alpha spread business. We also have a long-only product. And, you know That's an alpha product too. And so at the end of the day, as long as we have the right portfolio construction, which I mentioned earlier, I believe we do now, if you're generating an adequate either in long-only product amount of alpha or an adequate alpha spread in the long-short product, I think that's how you need to measure success. I mean, if we can't generate adequate alpha over time. We're not going to have a business and LPs should index their money because it's a lot cheaper than hiring a hedge fund. It really all comes down to alpha generation over the longer period of time. But in the short run, I can't control that. All I can control is our decision-making. And what drives you towards that vision of future success? And have the things that motivated you or the aspects that motivate you, have they changed over time, evolved as you've been doing this for a longer period? This is perhaps not the most original answer ever, but I'm a really competitive person and alpha generation it means you're beating other people. It means you're beating the market. And that's how you define value add in our business. And I take a great source of pride in knowing that we're adding that value for LPs. The most simple answer is you have to be competitive in this business. There's so many smart people in this business. And one thing that my dad said to me when I was little was, you know, whatever you decide to do in your life, make sure you love it because it's the only way you're going to be really good at it. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a teacher or whatever, you got to love it because if you don't love it, other people are going to spend that extra time investing in themselves and they're going to beat you. And I truly believe that. And I love this business and I'm a competitive person. And when you put those two things together, that's really what drives me and makes me come to work every day. I'd say the other thing that I guess is probably 
has evolved over the last seven years is I just feel a great pride in the team that we've built. And we've been fortunate to be together for a long time. Like I mentioned earlier, we've had an incredible employee longevity. We have a lot of fun. We do ski trip every year. We go different places depending on how much value we added for LPs. But And we do offsites to be kind of more introspective about our jobs. But it's a joy coming to work and working with these people. And I, I'd say that's changed because when I started this seven years ago and we did our first trade, it was, you know, me and one analyst. And, you know, now we have 11 people and there's a, there's definitely a sense of pride I have in, in the team we have and how much we all like working together. We're getting towards the end now. I just have a few final questions for you, Will. The first one is, what is the toughest question you've been asked by an allocator and how did you answer it? If I can answer it this way, Ben, the toughest set of questions was when an allocator came in on site for <laughs> to to our shop and asked for our three worst performing securities in the last year, and then wanted to pour through every single detail of those securities, meaning our obviously our investment memos, every single research call that's been done, and then also email traffic. I went through in painstaking detail those three biggest money losers that we had. And we do a lot of that. We try to be introspective and look at our own mistakes, but having you know an independent third party that is a very experienced you know interviewer and allocator look through all those details with you was incredibly humbling and in some ways difficult, in some ways really eye-opening to see how a, a third party thought about those mistakes as opposed to my own views of them. But I would say that was probably the toughest allocator interview I've ever had. I learned a lot from it, but it was not easy. <laughs> Great. And what is your most important daily habit? We built the gym in the office. I'm a avid athlete. I work out every day, usually over lunch. I get in early and by midday or early afternoon, it's already been kind of a long day and I'm addicted to my Peloton. But I feel it's a really great way to clear your head and be super productive for the rest of the day. Every day, I'm, I'm you know six days a week over lunch on the Peloton. And I think it's not only good for my physical health, but it's good for my mental health and my emotional health, particularly in very volatile days. Getting on the treadmill or bike for a half an hour does wonders for your state of mind. Uh, and there's obviously been lots of research written on that as well, but that's probably my most important habit. And then finally, what teaching from your parents has stayed with you the most? So my dad always used to say moderation in everything. And I think what he meant by that was a good idea taken to an extreme becomes a bad idea. And I think that's true in life and it's definitely true in investing. As an example, I mentioned earlier, people have gone from talking about 20 to 30 times earnings for a good growth company to 20 to 30 times EBITDA to now 20 to 30 times revenues. Well, it's a good idea to have innovation on your side. It's a good idea to be on the right side of change, but it's not a good idea if you take that to an extreme. You know, moderation, everything, and a good idea taken to an extreme becomes a bad idea. It's just a really good life mantra, but it's a really good thing to remember in investing as well, and it can really keep you out of trouble. Great. Thanks, Will. Ben, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.